That second verse strikes me as extremely moving. Uh, it says, Our fathers, chained in prisons dark, were still in heart and conscience free. Doesn't it remind you that there are more kinds of freedom than the sort of freedom that we as Americans think of? That there is a such thing as being free, even if we're not free. Uh, that we can do as God calls us to do, and we can obey God from our conscience. Uh, praise God for those who have come before us and who've been faithful. Our scripture passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6. Now this is a big throwback, and you may have forgotten entirely that we were going through the book of Matthew. And we have been, uh, were almost finished with the Sermon on the Mount when we stopped and we began to look at the book of 1 Timothy. And in full transparency, we did it, particularly because of Paul's discussion of church officers. I, I'm grateful for the God's ministry to us uh, from the book of 1 Timothy, but I'm also very excited to return to, to the life of Jesus, to the teachings of Jesus, and to get back to the Sermon on the Mount. And so here we are, we're going to jump in head first back into the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with Matthew chapter 6 and the first four verses. Hear now the word of God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask God to bless his word. Heavenly Father, it is your plan for us that we would be like you. You called us in the previous passages in Matthew chapter 5, to be perfect even as you are perfect. You've called upon us to mirror your goodness in our own life and in our relationships with other people. And so, Lord, would you, by means of your Son, train us up in the school of virtue and goodness that Jesus has for us. Would you show us what it looks like to live as Christians and give us a desire to live for you and follow you Indeed, by being those who give, who give not for recognition from people, but to please you. Help us today by sending your spirit to be our helper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be secret, or you may be seated. You may be secret too, I guess. I don't know how secret you may be, but we have one chapter of the Sermon on the Mount left. That is chapter 6. After chapter 6, then we move into the active ministry of Jesus in Galilee. And as he, of course, is approaching Jerusalem for what we know is ahead. The last chapter on the Sermon on the Mount, which it's been months ago that we looked at it. In fact, I can even say it was last year that we looked at it. Um, 
Jesus was very focused on this, this specific application of what it means to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And, and Jesus applied that, that to the idea of how we read something like the Ten Commandments. So if you remember what Jesus did, he said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And then he gave us instruction on various issues, right? He took us through essentially the two tables of the Ten Commandments. And he challenged us to have a deeper understanding of what the commandments are calling us to than just on the surface. So if you remember, you know, in the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not murder. And then Jesus said, yeah, that's the bare minimum. But also think of what comes before we ever think of murdering somebody. We hate them in our hearts. So Jesus, Jesus is taking all these commandments and he's going deeper. He says, oh, you, you're, you're fine with the command not to commit adultery. But Jesus says, the way you look at a man or a woman also and the way you desire them in your heart becomes the seed that turns into the commandment not to commit adultery. And so Jesus is saying all of these commandments have deeper meanings than just what we sometimes superficially assigned to them. Jesus is taking us all the way down to the heart level. What does it look like to be truthful to people in all of our lives, right? What does it look like to have a heart that's chaste and pure, not just a heart that doesn't commit the act of adultery, and that's what Jesus has been doing. That's what Jesus has been teaching about that leads us up to this place today. But there's a little bit of a turn here because for the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turns his focus in another direction. So if your eyes are looking at the text, not just for this morning because we only have four verses printed here in the text, but if you actually look at the larger context of chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, Jesus asks this question, what should your religious focus and motivation be? What is your, what's your spiritual life supposed to be driven and defined by? Why and how are you supposed to do what you might call religious things, right? Religious things like, like giving and, and praying and fasting. How are you supposed to do those things, right? He's, he's saying, yeah. We, we know about the importance of avoiding sin, but what does a truly lived out spiritual life look like? And then in verses 19 to 34, Jesus focuses finally on what our attitude toward the things of the world actually ought to be. But for the moment, we're entering into this first part of the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, and this section runs through the first 18 verses. Now, we're only going to focus on part of that this morning. We're only going to look at the first four um, but that section begins with a verse that's going to introduce an idea that will define and provide context for all that Jesus will say over the next three weeks. What idea is that? What is the overarching idea? We see it here right away in verse 1. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So this text is the umbrella over everything Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount for the next 18 verses. Think of the next 18 verses as Jesus' exposition of this verse. This is Jesus' application of what he means by practicing your righteousness not to be seen by other people. So if you want to know what it looks like to practice your righteousness, not to be seen by other people, verse 1 through verse 18 
are the answer to that. It's Jesus telling you what it looks like. And so he's telling us, what does it mean to not practice our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them? He's going to tell us how to live that out. Think about this. He starts off by saying, beware. Saying there's a danger in living a spiritual life. There is a danger that needs to be recognized by anybody who would follow after God. If you're going to follow the Lord then you're going to be engaging in religious practices. And if you're engaging in religious practices, Jesus says, beware. You know, it's sort of like going on a, a mountain road that doesn't have a railing, right? And, and Jesus is saying, actually, there is a railing here, and you need to know where the railing is. You need to be very careful. It's dangerous where you're going. You have to go. You have to take that journey. But you need to know that it's very, very, very important how to be careful on that road. And so Jesus says, here's the deal. If you just take what Jesus is saying at face value, he's concerned when, when it comes to motivation, what it is that drives us. And, and if you take the words at face value here, he's concerned that these people listening to him preach are going to live in such a way that they have no reward. Right? Whatever this reward is, and we'll talk about that, but whatever this reward means, Jesus says, if you are not careful, you will have no reward. And that worries Jesus. That's why he's giving this warning here. And so as we begin, as we focus on this idea of giving, let's not miss the larger project in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Our motivations, the things that drive us, the reason we do what we do, the things that we live for matter to Jesus because they define what is our ultimate love. What is the ultimate thing that we live for? Do we live to be seen by people? Or do we live to be seen by God? Is our life lived for an audience of one? Or is our life lived so that people will praise us? Um, this is entirely relevant to us. It's relevant to me as a pastor. Uh, how dangerous it feels to lead public prayers in front of people. <laughs> um, Jesus is going to talk more about that later. And even as I look at those texts, I just think, oh, Lord, what a dangerous thing it is to even lead worship. Um, this is entirely relevant to us, not even, even to you, right? Even if you don't lead worship, it is relevant because we live in a performative age. We live in an insincere age where everybody is looking around to see if a camera was on, right? Did somebody see that? Did somebody see that thing I did? The more Social media and online mobs define how people feel about themselves and what people believe about themselves. The more tempted we are going to be to live to be seen. And, and so it's an age where what do people do? They document themselves. They photograph themselves. Uh, I, I, sometimes I don't even know why. My, my family and I, we have uh, uh, something we like to do every now and then. Uh, we have a YouTube channel that we follow. And all it is, is mistakes people made during the week. And I hope that's not sinful, but, uh, you know, it's like somebody wrecks their bicycle this week. Or somebody's, here's what always happens. Somebody is recording themselves working out with their dumbbells. And they raise them above their head. And they always shatter the light that's at the ceiling above their head. And it happens over and over again. And, you know, I think everyone in my house is sitting there going, uh, why did they hit the light? And I'm going, why did they set the camera up and record this? <laughs> why? why are they recording themselves eating cereal? 
Why are they recording? That? They just record, people record everything now. Future generations will have untold gigs and terabytes of data about your life to comb through. They will see so many of your recorded workouts. Just pictures of ourselves, more than anyone could ever possibly need. I don't know if you follow social media. You're probably better off if you don't. But one frequent thing that you see is performative good deeds so that people will know. I, vo- I donated to the right charity. I volunteered today at X. I did this. Um, who are they saying these things for? They're saying them for others to see so they can know about them, right? They want to shape the opinion of other people by letting them see some of the things in their life that they're proud of and that they want others to notice and that they want others to assign to them, right? This is the kind of person who does X and also they, do other, they make another decision. I'm going to hide other things, right? I'm going to talk about the great things in my life so that all the other moms who follow me on Facebook think that I have it all together. And then I'm not going to tell them about the huge fit that I threw in the car on the way to church, right? (laughs) We just don't do that. Jesus is concerned, right? He's concerned for a people who live for the applause of other people instead of the applause of the Father in heaven. And so he devotes this large portion of his sermon, right? Think about all the topics Jesus touches on in the Sermon on the Mount. He moves from one thing to another thing to another thing. Maybe you noticed this about when we went through the Sermon on the Mount so far. It's been in really small chunks. You know, we're doing two or three verses at a time. Some weeks we're doing one verse because it's so dense. And then all of a sudden, here he goes, 18 verses on how not to live for other people, people's recognition. See, in, in particular, he asked the question in relation to giving. That's, that's this morning. He says, in light of the fact that the Christian life is really lived before the face of God, not for the applause of people, he addresses this question with regard to giving. And particularly, he addresses the practice of giving. He addresses the attitude of giving. And he addresses the reward of giving. So the practice of giving, the attitude of giving, the reward of giving. Those are our three points this morning. Take a look at this. First, Jesus addresses the practice of giving. Jesus says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Um, this is not really a controversial point. I haven't seen anybody smuggling their trumpets into the worship service yet. Um, I have joked about this, but it's absolutely true. There was a guy named Jerry who used to sneak a tambourine into the church that I grew up in. And they would sometimes catch him at the door and say, Jerry, you can't bring your tambourine into worship. Uh, just walk in like, oh. Um, and then there was one time somebody brought a shofar into the worship service. So sometimes that stuff happens, but not here. We haven't, we haven't seen that here. Um, but this is, this is something that, that Christians are often afraid to talk about. They're afraid to talk about giving because, and, and so because of that, we think, well, look, we don't want to talk about giving, so we don't need to address it, Right. Well, Jesus says this. He says, when you give to the needy. He he doesn't say if you give to the needy. Uh, Jesus assumes that his people are going to give to the needy, and they need to know how to give to the needy. Now, think about what giving is and, and why it fits into this section about living for God. 
giving is something that on the face of it gives no benefit to the one who does the giving, right? All that happens if you give is you have less of that thing that you gave, whatever it is, right? And, and uh, you see this with, with children, right? You will give them two cookies and say, share the other one with your brother. And the, they have nothing, materially speaking, to gain from giving the other cookie. And that's why you have to watch them go and give it, right? You're, you're keeping an eye on them because he's got nothing to gain from giving this away except a happy glance from his parents. Um, uh, that's what giving is, though. Giving is, is something that you give and you don't get a benefit, right? Um, think about a gift. A gift is something that you give to a person you are in a relationship with. You, you send money to the IRS, Right. That is not a gift. That is a, that is a transaction. Now, weirdly, at the bottom, usually they'll say, do you want to give more? And they need to have like a box that says, yes, no, and what do you think is wrong with me? <laughs> right? You pay your electric bill. That is not a gift. That is a transaction, right? A, a gift is not something that is owed. It's something that is freely and willingly given. A, and a gift says... You and I have a connection. I care about you on some level. So I'm going to give you something that I could have kept for myself, right? That's what giving is. Now, I want to say a few words about the specific kind of giving Jesus mentioned here. He mentions specifically and intentionally giving to the needy. So he's not not necessarily talking about religious offerings here, although I think the same principle would apply, right? I think if he says, don't sound the trumpet when you give to the needy. Just do it when you're giving at church. Uh, I think that you also miss the point of what Jesus is saying. But specifically, Jesus says, when you give to the needy. So, so there's one assumption that we may or may not struggle with, and that is giving to the needy. Um, we see this in the place where we live, uh, that there are, are people standing on the corners where we have a stoplight, and you make a decision. Each time when you get to the stoplight, First of all, do I even have cash? Second of all, would it be wise, would it be loving for me to give to this person who is a complete stranger and whom I don't know what they would do with this money? Well, um, let's just get out of the way that we ought to give to the needy. There's no question about that. Jesus says so. It was built into the life of Israel that God's people would help those within its bounds, right? So the, the, the principle here is that everybody within Israel is going to be taken care of on some level, right? The law is constructed in such a way that when you harvest your fields, you leave the grain in the corners, there needs to be something for the needy. This is a society that is built uh, to make sure that nobody within the bounds of God's people is starving to death, right? That is, that's one of the plans for the way that God has constructed his people to be. Here's the, the question of how to give, or what's the most effective and helpful way to give, especially in our own modern context, is a different question. Um, by the way, if you want a book that helps address this complexity of this issue, I would recommend a book called When Helping Hurts. Ask me after church if you're interested in it. Um, but the authors address the fact that very often what happens is you give money to somebody who's, who's panhandling, somebody who's looking for, for, for money, and they don't know you and you don't know them. For example, one of the things they say is this actually doesn't help that person. It can actually be enabling. So if a person is, is an addict, then they feed their addiction with what you give them. Or on the other hand, 
uh, if they really just haven't eaten in two days and they would actually use the money to eat, I think that would be money well used. But, but because we don't have a relationship with that person and often don't go to the trouble of forming a relationship with that person, and because we don't get to know them, then we don't know how we can help them. But usually we move along in such a hurry that we don't do it and we don't try to find out. Remember, I mentioned a gift is something given in the context of a relationship. Because we know this person that we're giving to, we have an idea how they might use what we give them. And what the authors of of When Helping Hurts point out is that when a personal connection is formed with somebody, it helps us to know the person and know what would really help them best of all. Um, Maybe giving them $20 is just what they need, and you know that they would use the money well. But maybe when they, what they need is someone to buy them a meal and take an interest in them and spend time with them and offer them support. Maybe help them find a job. Give them directions so they be- can become self-sufficient. See, people end up becoming more of a project sometimes than we want. And what we really want is a microwaved answer to helping somebody who is needy. What are the three buttons I can push? And boom, this person's going to be just fine. And people are projects, and oftentimes... They, they, they're not easily helped and certainly not quickly helped. I feel confident in saying Jesus wants us to always be ready. He wants us to always be willing to give to the needy. And, and especially when it's wise to do so, he wants us to give to the needy. But more so, we should be ready to take an interest in the long-term good of those who are willing to work to better themselves, especially in the context of the local church. This is something I really want to press upon. If you look at the life of Israel, the life of Israel, the city of Israel, or the, the nation of Israel is built to care for those within her bounds. It's, the, Israel is meant to make sure that nobody who is a part of this people should go hungry. Israel today, it does not look like a nation state. It looks like a people who live in all sorts of places, in all sorts of nations, in all sorts of states, in all sorts of cities. There are even some Christians in this area, right? And what we're talking in, in, instead of, I'm skeptical of any request for help from a person who doesn't want to be part of the church, who comes and says, can I have some money? And you say, would you like to come to a Sunday worship? And they say, no, that's not for me. I'm extremely skeptical of doing something like that. Someone who won't sit under the discipleship of God's word. Because what needs to happen in this person's life is not for them to get 10 bucks or 20 bucks. What actually is needed is a deep investment in the person, right? If you want to help in a way that actually helps, it's important that you actually know the person and you invest yourself in them and that they're willing to come and participate as well. So the question is, are you willing to help someone like that? Jesus says we should stand ready and we should have a plan for how we'll help someone like that. So let's have wisdom, let's have discernment, let's have a willingness to help. I, I think this is why Jesus says, when you give to the needy, not if you give to the needy. So that's point one. It's the practice of giving. We should be giving freely because God has freely given to us. He has taken care of us. But we also need to be loving to the person so that we actually know what would really help them. Second, though, is the attitude of giving, right? We, how should we give? How should we give? Well, we keep reading in verses 2 and 3. Look again at what Jesus says. He says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, 
that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So here's the question. What does it mean to give in secret? Well, Jesus says, sound no trumpet, right? (laughs) For starters, he's saying, do not draw attention to yourself. Don't broadcast it out. Someone may find out that you gave, but don't set out to make sure that they do. I actually don't think this takes a great deal of exposition. I think you probably know what it means. It means that we don't premeditate and decide that if I do this thing, this will be great optics. I can help this guy over here, but no one will notice if I do that. It won't look as good, right? Um, He's saying, don't worry about making sure the maximum number of people know about your deed or tell others about it. Instead, we're supposed to do the opposite, you know? We, we actually think, what can I do for the Lord and not for people to notice or thank me? I, just, just walking around with that motivation. What is something secret I can do that would be a blessing to somebody in need? I'll give you a, an example from our own life. Um, Aaron and I, when we were first married, we were going to college. You, I beat this drum quite a bit. It's okay to be broke, but if you're married, at least you're broke together. And Aaron and I got married after our first year of college. We were a brand new married couple, and we were, we were broke. We were broke, broke. We had almost no money. And when I say almost no money, I mean, I think we had 25 bucks in our bank account. And we were scheming. You know, we, sometimes we would sit and go, what should we do that's legal to get some money? <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, we're both working, but the paycheck's not going to come for a week, right? And, and I remember one time we were really scheming. How do we make it to payday? It's about a week away, you know, and I don't remember if it was that night or the next morning, but we were at our house and we noticed that something different about our mailbox and someone had taken a clothespin and they have just put $100 on the clothespin and stuck it in our mailbox we, we were baffled. We didn't know who it was. We hadn't told anyone we were broke. Maybe everyone could tell that we were broke because we never went out to eat with them. Um, you know, we're sure it was a friend, somebody who knew that we were, we were low on cash. They didn't leave a name. They didn't leave a note. They just left $100. And let me just say, in 2001, $100 was a lot of money. Uh, in 2001, you could buy groceries for a week for two people and fill your car up. Like... It makes me feel ancient. And then you can still go out to eat afterwards. Um, man, that $100, it was, it just, it, I still remember it 20 plus years later. It still sticks with me. I always thought that was such a great example of secret giving, right? I, I think we were needy. I, I think that was the sort of thing Jesus was talking about. And someone who knew us, they, they were sure we wouldn't waste the money and they gave it. And they gave it without looking for recognition. And they didn't do it for praise. Um, there was no social media to get on and say, hey, look, I left secret money in someone's mailbox. Time to do your good deed for the day, you know, like that sort of thing. Uh, It wasn't done for praise. It was the sort of thing that God rewards. Someone out there, God is going to reward them. Again, we'll talk about that in a moment. There was no one to applaud them. There was no one to thank them. There was no one to think better of them for their secret act of virtue. They just did it. There are also examples of the opposite, of course. We see plenty of those in in Scripture. One of the most notorious examples of not giving in secret is the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, 
right? You think about Acts chapter 5. You have this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a piece of property, and they want to give to the church, right? A very noble thing, a good thing, I think. They want to give some of it to the church. The problem is they tell the church that they're giving all of the money, not just some of it. So it's already known, but they're trying to overblow what they've done. They're trying to emphasize in a way that's dishonest what they're giving, right? They care about the optics. They're thinking, who knows? Maybe they're thinking church leadership in the future. Maybe they're thinking, if I can't be a church leader, maybe I can be an influencer. Everybody knows I sold all this property, right? Who knows what's going through Ananias and Sapphira's heads. But whatever it was, they were two people who gave for the sake of recognition. They actually did give. And on some level, that's commendable. But they were also concerned to shape the narrative around their giving. They didn't just want to sell the land. They wanted to give a lot of money to the church. They wanted people to think that they gave all the money to the church. They were performing, weren't they? They, they, wanted, they were not obligated to give all that money to the church, by the way. They were not judged by God because they didn't give every dime. They were judged because they cared about what it looked like. They were sounding the trumpet, and they were lying about what they were putting in there. They wanted people to talk about their giving. Some church members want leadership to know they're big givers. I used to have a a member who, for some reason, he wouldn't always be there on a Sunday. He wanted to, to make sure that I personally got the check for the offering, and he would just fold it in half. You know, he didn't put it in an envelope. He didn't, like, hide it away. He didn't fold it quadruple times or something like that. He just kind of folded it, and he would either hand it to me and say, I can't be there Sunday. Will you put this in the offering for me? Um, or or um, he would send me a card, and I would think, oh, okay, there's something in here for me. And sure enough, there's a check, and I thought, oh, wow. Well, that's his offering. Why is he giving me this? And I, have, I know I'm, I'm supposed to assume the best, but I came to believe he wanted me to see how much he was giving. Some members want leadership to know they are big givers. For some, they, they hope that their opinion on matters related to the building or the management of the church is going to be heated more than others, perhaps, even though they're not a church officer. I remember talking to a pastor. He had a really difficult experience. There was a church member who, because of a situation, needed to be confronted about a serious sin in his life. And apparently the elders at the church kept track of who was giving and how much they were giving. And they went to the pastor and said, tread carefully, this member's a big giver. There are some pieces of information that it is not good to know as an elder in Christ's church. It is an incredibly dangerous mentality for a church. It's my own, I'm convinced of this, that the church treasurer should keep track of these things and nobody else should know. Um, a few reasons why. One is when people give cash, nobody knows how much they're actually giving. And so a church leadership might mistakenly think someone's not giving when they actually are. Um, in other words, the numbers on the paper are not always reflective of true giving. Uh, another reason is church leadership may indeed fall into the trap of regarding someone's giving in a situation where a confrontation is called for. We cannot and we must not factor anything like that into issues of spirit, the spiritual life of the church. The, the, the session of the church especially needs to be protected from that mindset. And then there's a third reason. We don't want church members' left hand to know what their right hand is doing. It's important for you as church members to give 
not with ulterior motives. And one of the ways that we can help with that is by telling you, we don't know what you're giving. Um, I think this is Jesus's very clever way of saying, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus is so wise. Jesus is so clever. He's saying, we don't want to be giving for the sake of influence. We don't want to be thinking about what our giving will do or mean beyond the simple fact that we are giving because it is needed. If we think that way, it is spiritually poisonous. It puffs us up with pride. It damages our souls. It ruins the reward of giving. Jesus says there's an alternative to giving for influence. There's an alternative to giving for praise. There's an alternative to giving for recognition. He says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. That's what Jesus wants for you, secret giving. He wants secret giving for you. Because the secret giving is protected giving. It is giving that is only done for the right reason. It's the second point this morning. It's the attitude of giving. Now, third, we have the reward of giving. Um, You see these references throughout our passage today. You're going to see more as we go through the book of Matthew. Uh, In a few chapters, he's going to talk more about this idea of reward. But Jesus says, if we practice our righteousness to be seen, he says, you will have no reward except maybe people praising you. Right? And so he says that those who live for the praise of others have received their reward. He says, if you give in secret, your father who sees in secret will reward you. So that's the flip side of this. Who do you get the reward from? The people or from your father? Who are you going to get the reward from? You're the people or the father? The people or the father? This is the dilemma. It can't be both. So, so this presents a, a dilemma, right? Because many think, you know, if I, get a, if I get a reward for something, then it isn't a good deed, right? If I do something and I know that I'm going to get something good from doing it, then it must not be virtuous. Um, maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you think that yourself. Immanuel Kant was uh, an Enlightenment thinker. He wrote on a lot of subjects. One of the subjects he's well known for is the subject of ethics. And Kant said this. He said, for something to be a good deed, it must be purely altruistic. And what he means by altruistic is we should not be thinking at all about any kind of reward or it is not a good deed. He's saying if we do it and, we, and we're thinking about what we get or what it produces or what we gain, then there's no virtue in it. And this was something that Kant taught and it's something that I think a lot of people have still held on to. In other words, he says, a a good deed can't be colored by any concern for what the doer of the deed might get in return. And so for Kant, he said, people should never be seen as things to be used or as a means to an end. So he's he's got a good motivation in mind here. Uh, And insofar as you treat a good deed as something to help you out as well, you're not actually doing a good deed. And Kant said, you can't be selfish and also do a good deed. And I genuinely believe Jesus would give Kant pushback. Jesus would outright disagree with him. Because here's the thing. When you look at Jesus, he is constantly dangling carrots in front of God's people. Um, By the way, in case you've not heard that term before, maybe kids in the room, a carrot is a metaphor for a reward. Yeah, carrots. Now, I don't know if any of you love carrots. 
Okay, we've got carrot lovers in the congregation. My children would not go for the carrot. <laughs> so some kids, if you held a carrot out in front of them, they will follow it and they will take it. Um, but not everybody. That's why I say it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for a reward that you get for something that you do. And Jesus does this all the time. Jesus is constantly dangling carrots in front of people in his ministry. He, here's the thing. The carrots Jesus hold out, holds out to us are eternal carrots. So when you, when you speak to those who pray, as we're going to see next week, Jesus talks about people who pray. We're going to talk about prayer next week. Jesus says, look, he doesn't say you get nothing for praying. Pray because it's your duty. That is not what Jesus does. When he instead, here's what he says. He says, pray in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Did you know that God will give you carrots for praying? <laughs> like he's going to give you something for doing this, right? And so he holds out this reward. And when he does this, he contrasts that with people who perform their religion in public. What does he say about those people? He says, truly, they have received their reward. They have received their reward. They got their carrot when they did it for people to see. So, so what you see is that Jesus recognizes something. He, he recognizes everybody lives for a reward. Everybody does. Fifteen times... In the gospel, Jesus points to rewards as someone's motive for doing something good. I'm just going to give you, I'm going to festoon you with examples from Jesus. Blessed are you when you're persecuted on my account, for your reward is great in heaven. Here you go. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Here's another one. The one who receives a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Here's this. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of water because he is my disciple, he will by no means lose his reward. Here you go, one more. Lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. So this is Jesus 101. This is basic Christian ethics there is a reward. There is a reward. The rest of the New Testament speaks of rewards as well. The common term the New Testament sometimes uses is the word crown. Uh, James talks about a, the crown of life. Peter talks about receiving an unfaded crown, unfading crown of glory. The book of Revelation talks about Jesus giving his people a crown of life. So we can deduce something at this point, and that is this. At the very least, it is not wrong to do something for a reward. It is not wrong to chase the carrot if it's a God-centered carrot. Just because we like doing something or because we get a reward from God for doing something does not mean that it is wrong or that it's not a good deed. Now, I kind of, I suspect you feel this in your own heart that oftentimes when you do good deeds, you do it with, with mixed motives, right? Maybe you feel some sort of inner conflict in what you do, but at the end of the day, at times you may end up doing the right thing, but you also know the reason you ended up doing it was on some level self-centered. You, you thought about the fact that God, God does call us to give, and maybe you didn't give 
out of a response to that, but maybe you gave because you were afraid of what happens if you don't, right? We do the right thing, but at the same time, we do it with mixed motives that we wish were more pure. Here's what Jesus does. He says, he says I know the way people work. In fact, he says, this is the way I designed people to work. I made you to pursue rewards. What I didn't make you for was to live for worldly rewards in the here and now. So that's the difference, right? He wants us to do good. He wants us to live for the pleasure of the Father. But he expects that we won't get the rewards now. We won't get them in this life. He wants us to chase rewards, but he wants us to chase the right rewards. He wants us to chase heavenly rewards. So here's the question. What's a heavenly reward? What's a heavenly carrot? On one level, Jesus doesn't get specific. He doesn't say, here's what it is. But on the other hand, whatever it is that we get from Christ in heaven is something that will fill us with greater delight and joy than something we would get here. Right? Whatever, whatever our rewards in heaven are, they aren't material. They aren't worldly rewards. Um, you know, it's not like we're going to get to heaven and there's going to be a plaque or a stack of, of, of gold that's been imprinted with the good deed you did or something like that. Could you imagine if you got to heaven and the rewards were all these just fleshly physical rewards that people in this life have right now and they're completely miserable with them? How many Olympic athletes have shelves and shelves and shelves full of trophies and things they have achieved and yet they walk around their empty house completely miserable? Um, watch the Michael Jordan documentary sometime. It is eye-opening to wonder what it would be like to have everything and nothing. If you got to heaven and it was full of a bunch of trophies and plaques and piles of gold, you would be miserable because it wouldn't be the thing that you were living for. Jesus says, live for heavenly rewards. My suspicion is that this reward we live for is something of Christ's own self for us. Right? Right? After all, think about this. A sanctified person, a person who loves God, a person who's growing to love the Lord, growing in their motivation to love God like this, God is really their greatest desire. And, and anything else they get is going to be pale in comparison to the Lord. Right? To the idea that you could have something greater than God, that you could be filled um, with, the, the idea that you could have something greater than God is an illusion. There is nothing greater you could imagine in all of life than to have Jesus and be united to him. What greater reward is there? Amen. What else is there that could fill your he a heavenly mansion or a building full of a bunch of shallow objects? Think of what the psalmist says. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Wouldn't it be weird for him to get to heaven and go, where's my reward? And God goes, it's a piece of metal. I made it for you. Right? He's... He's showing us what he wants more than anything else. I do not think it is a stretch to suggest that our heavenly reward will be Jesus. Jesus has already hinted at this, right? He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Right? I'm going to give you the thing you want more than anything else in all of this life. To have him and, and, and to be with him and to have the thing that we love most of all. It's to have him. If God does give us any sort of reward or recognition or crown, like a literal crown of some kind, 
I think one thing we can be sure of is this. It will be used by God to increase our joy in Christ, not distract us from him or diminish our love of him. Now, here's something to keep in mind. We may get some temporal benefit from from giving, right? If you give to the church and you put it in the form of a check, or if you put your cash in an envelope and you write your name on it, at the end of the year, you're going to get some kind of tax deduction, right? That is a temporal benefit of giving. And yet Jesus cares why you give. He says, don't give for that reason. Don't give because of that. Give because why? What does he say this morning? He says, give in a way that is not seen by others so that your father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't give because of the benefit you get at the end of the year. Give in secret. Give in secret. Um, When we give, we need to ask God, search me and try me, Lord. Test my heart. Create in me a clean heart. Whatever it takes, help me to give, but to give well. Here's the end of the matter as far as Jesus is concerned. He says, live for rewards, but make them eternal rewards. Don't live for recognition. Don't live for admiration. Here's the thing about eternal rewards. We don't get them now. We don't get them now. And when we finally get them, we will hand them right back. Right? What do, you, what do I mean? Well, look in the book of, of Revelation. You have the saints around the throne of God. They have their rewards. In this case, they have their crowns. Whether it's a metaphor or whether, whether, it's, whether it's literal, they have their crowns. And do you know what they do? It says in Revelation 4.10, The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. I've got to get this crown off of my head because there is no one in this room that deserves to wear it except you, Lord. Lord, it is about you. So for them to give their reward back is to recognize that it came from him to begin with and to give it back is the fulfillment of what the crown means to begin with, right? The reward we live for is the reward of magnifying the name of Jesus. If if we really love people seeing that Christ is great and if we really love ascribing worth to the creator and to the savior, the idea of giving him the glory The idea of giving him the credit should be zero imposition upon us at all. Insofar as it is, that's the remnants of sin in us. What kind of person would have a problem with this? To be frank, it's someone who doesn't live for Jesus, right? They live for themselves. The the sort of person who would say, but I want my reward. I want to keep my reward. When I'm in heaven, I want to be able to to point to things. I want to be able to point to accomplishments. I want to be able to show others what I did. I want to be able to say, I helped the church put that steeple on. Uh, I gave so that the roof could be repaired. I, I helped that family that was in trouble. I built this place up, right? That sort of person, when the moment comes around the throne and it's their turn to throw down the crown, they would be the sort of person to say, I think I'll keep it. I earned this. This is mine. I think Jesus would say to an attitude like that, you received your reward in life. You didn't live for heavenly rewards. Our attitudes toward rewards reveals our own heart. Do we live for the here and now or do we live for eternity? Where are our eyes? What's our motivation? What's driving us? Do we invest in the future or are we stuck in this moment? 
Will you live for an eternal crown? Will you set your eyes further out into eternity? Will you, will you live, in other words, for the glory of Jesus so that one day you'll have that reward that you can throw at his feet and you can say, it was worth it, Lord. I lived for you. I followed you. I satisfied, you satisfied my every need. You showed yourself to be faithful. You showed yourself to be the one that I needed, oh God. You are worthy and I will gladly give back to you what you have given to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give, but you gave first. We have gifts to share because you let them fall from your hand and into ours. You freely gave, you freely shared, you've showered us with gifts, you've told us we must be ready, eager, even looking for opportunities when we might be a blessing to those in need. But even as we do so, Lord, make us people who do such things in secret and not for the praise of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.